0: Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingalls Reads, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at That's jennetingle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E dot com. So I want to talk to you guys about
1: Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products, and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads.
0: Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. It's our one-year anniversary.
1: Do you know what the gift for one-year anniversaries is traditionally? Paper. I thought it was wood. Oh no, it is paper, and paper can <laughs> <I don't> kind <know>. of...
2: <laughs> well, you're forgiven because you've been married for a hundred years. <laughs> That's right. It's
1: paper. <laughs> Oh man, I was going to try to do like a tie-in with woodwinds, but
2: maybe sheet music? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Maybe we we owe each other a type of like sheet music or something like that. I'll send you a card. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe it's been a year? Oh, I'm so happy though. It's been an amazing year. It is, but I look back, I actually um, was talking to someone, and they're like, oh, I started listening to your podcast, and it's kind of this, like, weird sensation, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But then I was like, they mentioned something, like, early on, and I was like, oh, are you starting from the beginning?
2: (laughs) And they're like, yeah,
1: and I reflected on those beginning episodes, and real talk, the interviews are superb. So amazing. But holy moly, us figuring this out. (laughs) The only way I can get through it if I remember, like, all TV shows have kind of an awkward uh, <laughs> pilot and like the first season. You know what I mean? Like, you go back and watch the pilot episode of some shows, and you're like, "Okay, honey, you were you were still very much figuring this out, weren't you?" Hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, this is absolutely not reflective of our guests, but purely of us. Like, how many times did we have to re-record our dishes?
1: I remember there were times we'd say, like, a syllable. Like, it wasn't even, like, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I like how that sentence came off. Can can I start again? But, like, hi, everybody. Oh, no. Hi. Uh, too perky. Hi. <laughs> too serious. Um, And I remember, like, sometimes it would take us an hour to record, like, 15 minutes. Yeah. And also, oh, my gosh, th- I just remembered this. So, we were figuring it out. What we did was we brainstormed the podcast in late October, right? And then we were like, okay, we just have to do it. We have to set a launch date and we have to do it or we'll keep like dragging our feet and this will never actually happen. And so we were very much like figuring it out under the gun and our recording technology, do you remember this? We had a trial edition. Yes. And the trial edition like Until you bought the program, it didn't exactly sync up the two sides in time. And so we used to have to, like, one person would say something, and then the other would have to take a pregnant pause (laughs) and then respond. (laughs) And I'd take out the space and post. And, Uh oh, my goodness, just figuring that all out. Well,
2: I mean, that was all you. (laughs) I had nothing to – that was, like – all of this is possible because you took on the the challenge of learning the tech,
1: so thanks thanks to Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> the time we needed the best tech was when I was still like baby audacity girl. I'm definitely not like Bobby Fisher of tech world now, but i can I can get us through. <laughs> Can I tell you that I was going through my um, desk drawer
2: in my office and I have this system of every every semester all the performances and like projects I have coming up. I, I take like a, a note card and I just write out what it is in Sharpie and I post it to my cork board in my office. And so I have like two and a half years worth of uh, note cards now and I was shuffling through them and it was like, Double Read Dish Podcast, release twelve one, And I was like, oh, <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> Got a little
1: misty. <laughs> well, and we had wanted to be Double Speak, but another podcast yeah. had that name. And they're not even Double Read affiliated. Get out of here. Rude.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so in honor of our one year anniversary. Actually, this is like perfect because we hit a thousand likes on Facebook, what, three days ago?
1: Yes, and thank you guys so much. We kinda when we set our personal New Year's resolutions, we also set some goals for the podcast. And one of them was to get four digits on social media platforms sometime in twenty seventeen. So when we hit it, that was a big deal for us. That was a big mm-hmm. goal of ours. So we were excited. Yeah, there was a lot of exclamation points. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well.
1: Of course, the listeners don't know, but we'd text each other and be like, 957, 982,
2: 992. (laughs) And it sat at 999 for quite a while. It did. It was like a
1: full 24 hours
2: at 999. I was like, oh my God, when is it going to (laughs) happen? So, in honor of our thousand likes on Facebook, uh, we asked you guys what your favorite memory of the pa- of a past performance was, and we got some doozies. I gotta say,
1: bassoonists do not know how to be sitting in their chair and not <laughs> fall off the risers. There
2: were two separate stories. And three occasions of bassoonists falling off of the riser.
1: Just do us a favor. Before you scoot your chair back, turn around and look at how much space you have. It's an expensive instrument. Yes, this is the ultimate self-care. Not falling off the back of the stage with your instrument in your hand in front of a public audience. Three
2: separate people literally falling for the bassoon.
1: (laughs) Should we read their stories? Yeah. Okay, so Carissa says um, she had this big performance when she was younger, uh, very prestigious chamber ensemble, and it was this very fancy, swazzy, swazzy is not a word, swanky (laughs) event, Um, hors d'oeuvres, black tie, you know, formal attire. Um, So she's on a small stage in the corner of the room, and she's like, ugh, I'm so cramped. And so she Pushes her chair back just an inch or two to try to get a little more room. And then she says, When I fell in slow motion off the back of the (laughs) stage, I remember thinking, Save the bassoon as I tumbled. The music came to an abrupt halt. Hasn't no one heard the show must go on, by the way? Everyone in the room stared, or so it seemed. I picked myself up. The ensemble leader said, are you okay? And I shamefacedly replied, yes. And we went on with the show. And, yes, my bassoon was just fine. Carissa, we are sending you lots of love and hugs over the podcast. Also, she (laughs) specifies this was her very first professional performance when she was 13.
2: I'm so proud of you for sticking with it. I would have been like, I quit.
1: Bravo. Bravo. (laughs) What other top-length bassoonists do we have? So Nick's story is a twofer. He says,
2: My favorite (laughs) concert experience has to be the last concert of my youth orchestra's 2016-2017 season. We were playing Gershwin's American in Paris, and at the very end, one of our bassoonists fell off the back of the risers. (laughs) His stand and music went everywhere with him. Naturally, at the very end of the concert, after getting a nice giggle out of his incident, I was scooting my chair back to get a better view of the conductor, and my chair fell off the (laughs) riser. Luckily, it was between orchestra switching and nobody saw.
1: I'm just imagining these, like, youth orchestra with, like, you know, what's that game at, like, Chuck E. Cheese? Whack-a-mole. And just, like, (laughs) whack-a-mole the bassoons, and they're going down, like, one by one.
2: <laughs> Apparently, this is the number one like workplace hazard for the bassoon, yeah, workman's comp <laughs> uh,
1: do you wanna tell the nice oboe story we got? Yes. So this is some shine theory in the wild brought to us, courtesy of Bridget. Um, So she says, when our wind ensemble went on tour to Germany this past spring, I'd never flown with my oboe before. And what do you know? The first rehearsal abroad I get to, I open my case and my oboe has a large crack in the upper joint. I panicked and cried, but luckily the music community in town was so strong that a stranger was willing to let me, a foreign student, use their oboe for the tour. Wow. I was completely grateful, and I got to perform in the Palace Church in Mannheim, where Mozart performed on that tour. I am still in awe of the hospitality of those people.
2: Wow. (laughs) That's totally amazing. Not just for the concert, but for the whole tour.
1: So thank you guys for sending us those
2: stories. If you want to read more, there are more on our Facebook page. So just uh, head on over to our Facebook page and like it.
1: So the semester is ending. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. How are you feeling? Good. Thanksgiving break was well needed, but long. You know, when you come back and you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah,
2: this again. Can I tell you what I did? I mean, yours was longer than mine, but I felt like mine was like one day too long. Can I tell you what I did? Please. I got down on my
1: hands and knees and scrubbed my floors. (laughs) (laughs) Cleaning can be so cathartic. Oh, my God. It felt great.
2: And then for the next two days, I was just all I could talk about was how pretty the floors were. <laughs> and now they're getting dusty again so I'm going to have to do something about that.
1: But it was awesome. One of my favorite things is to vacuum while listening to a podcast. I love the tangible success of cleaning.
2: And it may be just me, but I can't I can't really concentrate when a room is really cluttered and dirty and stuff. Like I need I kind of need everything to be in its place otherwise all I do is look around and see unfinished tasks. And then I can't concentrate on what I'm supposed to be doing. So while I probably should have been working on other stuff that was more pressing and important, it still felt really good to clean my floors.
1: <laughs> I have moments like that, but I'm, and sorry, tell the Myers-Briggs skeptics, but I am a hardcore INFJ, mm-hmm. Um, so really characterized by hyper-organization in the macro, but A lot of disorganization in the micro so my car always looks like a tornado just hit my office always looks (laughs) like a tornado just hit and but my husband is like you and so Mm -hmm. I I can tell there's sometimes that he's like waking up in the morning and my read stuff is everywhere and like greeting is all over the kitchen table (laughs) and he's like
2: (laughs) I, I I'll tell you, it drives my wife crazy, absolutely crazy.
1: <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you guys so much for staying with us for the whole year. We can't thank you enough for your support. Man, this our listeners are what make the whole project worth doing.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. We just we feel the love, and it's and it's great. Thanks, guys, for listening.
1: So here at Double Read Dish, we love JDW sheet music. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a wide variety of music transcriptions by composers like W. C. Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. There's something for everybody. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as at the 2015 IDRS Conference in Tokyo. For access to her entire catalog, visit JDW Sheetmusic.com.
0: Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGenda, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives.
2: We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Judy LeClaire, Principal Bassoon of the New York Philharmonic. Welcome, Judy. Hi, thank you for having me. We always start by asking our guests if um, they can tell us about your training and educational journey, how you got to where you are today, and maybe even how you started playing the bassoon.
3: Okay, that's going back a ways. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I started the bassoon when I was ten. Um, I I had played cello and piano, and I just wasn't happy with I couldn't do anything on the what I wanted to do on the cello, and I I just loved the sound of the bassoon. Um I lived in a little town in West Virginia and my brother and I were both very involved. The band and the orchestra school and, and uh there was a bassoon available and I started it and you know, I, I just started taking lessons there and and then we moved to Delaware when I was 15, 14, and I started studying with um a teacher in Philadelphia named Shirley Curtis and then I studied privately with her and then I started attending the the settlement music school on Saturdays, and I did the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra also. But the settlement school was great because I was in a woodwind quintet for three years with an incredible group, and we met every Saturday and did chamber music all afternoon. And that was like the best training anyone could ever have. <laughs> it was so great. We would, and then when we were sixteen, we won an audition for the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra. Young people's concerts, and we played the Mozart symphony Concertant with them, and uh so that was, you know, I had a, a great training. I, you know, high school. I, I, I lived to go up on Saturdays to play with my group, and um, and then I had, you know, the lessons. That, that was, that was how I started, and then I went to Eastman. I went to college at, at Eastman. I studied. I just loved David Hosen When I went up to audition for him, I had a Three-hour lesson, and I said uh, that was it. <laughs> that was. That was, it was just, I just loved him, and and I was there for four very happy years. Uh, I loved Eastman, and um, and then I auditioned for the principal bassoon of San Diego. It was a week before I graduated. It was a great graduation present. So I, I got that <laughs> job, and then I was in the San Diego Opera, and then I was there. For a year before auditioning for the Philharmonic, which is a whole other story, which I could get into later. But um, and that's my training. Um, oh, oh, I also also when I was in high when I was in um, junior high school, I um, would go to uh, University of Ohio because I lived in West Virginia, and I studied with um, um, uh, person the teacher there. At university I studied with them for a, a couple of years, oh, one year I think.
1: Anyway. Well, since you offered, we would love to hear about um, your experience auditioning for and becoming Principal Bassoon of the New York Philharmonic.
3: Wow. <laughs> that was, okay, I was 22. I was still in San Diego, it was during the summer, and I knew that they, I, it was my first full summer there after a, I played one full year. And I saw that the opening was, and, you know, part of the, the struggle, I, I think with, it, it continues now, is, is having, when you have big auditions, is that they only want qualified people, experienced, I shouldn't say qualified, experienced people to audition, and there are a lot of young people in, in school, or in, you know, smaller orchestras that want to audition, but they are turned down because they don't have enough experience. But then they can't get the experience because they can't play in an orchestra that young. It's a cat's 22. So when I sent in my resume, of course, they said I was too young for a job like this. And my teacher at Van Hosen called one of the committee members, Harold Goltzer, who, who was the associate there, and said, you know, just listen to this, just listen to it. And so that was my in, and I, six weeks before the audition, I was granted a spot. The, uh, in the prelim, and then followed a list with about 35 excerpts. <laughs> a lot that I didn't know, um, but I had six weeks to learn them. And at that time, we were also playing the lecture at the San Diego Opera, so I think I was playing the for six hours a day for about six weeks, hmm. <laughs> learning those stuff. And that <laughs> that was that was a that was a lot. So then I went. In October, oh, I, I think I went to Rochester first to have a couple lessons with Ben Hosen, and then I went to, to New York and played the preliminaries. I don't know how many were in the preliminaries. I, I really don't know, but I passed into the next round, into the semifinals, and uh, played a lot of things. It was it was great. It was a lot of lot of great repertoire, and and then I was passed into the, a group of eleven of us that had passed into the semifinals. And that was exciting. And I think I came back the next day to play the next round, which was, or it might have been the same day. I didn't, no, it was, it wasn't enough. I can't even remember how long it was. But I came back and played the next round. And on, they narrowed it down to three. And I was one of those three. And... Then they, they said, uh, we'd like you to come back in 11 days and play the final round. So what I did is I went up to Rochester, and I stayed with a friend and took a bunch of lessons and um, just, you know, played for the Hosen and played and practiced and, <laughs> and practiced and practiced. <laughs> Came back down and... Um, they had us play uh, the, the final round, and it was very long. They kept having us come back and we'd come back and back and back again. And then uh, said at the end there were just two of us left, <laughs> and said, "Well, we'd like you to play. Come back in a week and play the um, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra." with the orchestra it was a Friday afternoon now the other person got Thursday night and I got Friday afternoon and this is about a rehearsal so I basically went home and memorized <laughs> memorized the uh, part talking to for orchestra I heard that Buben made Mehta liked you to watch him all the time so basically I just I didn't take my eyes off of him I, I know that piece pretty well now <laughs> uh, I had to basically learn every night and watch him the whole time and I remember at one point we were we were playing and I was just staring at him and he just started laughing because it it was just funny anyway after that performance um I went back to my locker room and then they finally called me up to Jimmy Chambers who was at our personal manager at the thing at that time and I thought they were going to tell me you know thank you for coming it was you know good and they offered me the job right there, right there. So um, I was 23. And um, I just, I, the funny thing is, is that I I had to go back to San Diego. I went back to my parents who were in Delaware. We celebrated and then I spent a weekend and then I had to fly back to San Diego. And it was the most terrifying flight in the world because at Chicago, there was bomb scare. And we had to be ground, we had to take photos on the ground, and we had dogs sniffing, and we were delayed for hours until then, and I always thought it was a bassoon player that called in <laughs> for a month on that flight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always thought it was a bassoon, you know, somebody said, oh, let's get her. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I finished out um, a few more, like about eight more months in San Diego, and then started um at the end of April in New York and and I've been there since yeah, it's been thirty six and a half years. <laughs> so that was my story.
2: Sounds like a really grueling audition process. Um how very, did you
3: keep,
2: Yeah, how did you keep your mental state in good working order throughout that whole experience?
3: Good question. I don't know, I think when you're young you don't think about those things. You just uh-huh. think you just think about how how much you want it. Uh-huh. And I just you want you want it so badly, and you wanted. I always wanted to be on the East Coast. I wanted to be in a big orchestra. I wanted to be, go on tours. I wanted. I just wanted to be principal bassoon in a big I, orchestra. That's all I wanted since I was like you know twelve years old. So, um, I just kept focused. And during the downtime, I was I would study the music a lot. I listened to music with my part and just studied it, which is something I try to tell my students to do all the time. Because it's not just how you play the notes at an audition; it's how well you portray, you know, the, the emotions of the music. How well you know the music, and you unless you study it and listen to it, you know, you, you know, you, you know. I would just spend hours in the Sibley library and listen to things, and with my part, and so I would know. You know, I do. I go different recordings, and I would know how people did it. And and so, when you are actually playing those excerpts, you actually know how they go instead of just playing notes. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that's a major part of of auditions because because you know, students say, oh, I played all the notes. I played everything perfectly." Well, no, you didn't. You didn't really know the music, and know what, where your part fit in in the wind section. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably getting beyond <laughs> past myself. But, you know, you have to play like you're in the orchestra. When you're playing at an audition, you need to play as if you are sitting right in the middle, very in that piece. So mm-hmm. that's how I kept my head going. I just, I just immersed myself in, in listening to the music.
1: Well, kind of related to the mental stuff, this is a question that we also asked Billy Short, but so you go through this audition process, and then there's the moment that you entered the hall as a member, as the principal bassoon of the New York Philharmonic. What was that transition like? Did you feel like you were prepared for it, or was it a steep learning curve? It, it's interesting. During those two
3: years in San Diego, we played a lot of repertoire, mm-hmm.
1: and
3: um, like we'd like i think my first week of san diego we played ride of spring and um we we did everything a lot of things there not everything but i had to be on my toes i mean i was living a, alone in a little apartment across the street from market center and my life was you know getting those parts and listening to them and um just practicing it was um it's, it's always a steep curve when you're you know you're filling in a principal job um I, I think for me, more of the the issue was having enough reads mm. to um, to be prepared for work every week. It wasn't as much of the steep learning curve because you know you have time to, to learn all the music and you have time and you know I knew, you know I, I was pre- pre- pretty prepared for every everything. But you know you have to learn how to sit with different players who are everybody that has different playing styles and. The New York Philharmonic back in 1981 is a far cry different than it is right now. Mm. So you had to learn sense people's personalities and um, how people related to each other, and I had to learn pretty quickly how to get along. I was very quiet, you know. I was pretty introspective, very quiet, and I, you know, just you just listen, you listen to people and. Um, you just get along and you try to be a good colleague I think more it's, it's it, you know you have to you have to learn things of how to be a really good colleague and that was that 's always hard for young people to learn okay. to learn that that's that's you know that's a that 's another huge thing that you know we have to work with our students on is how to get along with people and to um be respectful and um supportive and you know you can 't Turn around and look at someone. <laughs> you know, right. you know that brass players don't like that very much. You know, look at people like that. You know, you know, if, you, if people make mistakes, you have to, you know, and and just be supportive. There, you know, it was it, there were some things that were a little difficult. Some people um, were not so happy I was there, but in in the long run, you know, I, I, everything was fine, and, and uh I, I don't think I ever felt. I I let my playing speak by myself and I was very quiet. I didn't feel intimidated by people because I was a woman or a young woman. Mm -hmm. People were, were pretty respectful of me and I, I I didn't find that it was a, a, it was like a harsh working atmosphere. It was actually, it was pretty nice Mm -hmm. and I I was just so thrilled to be there Mm -hmm. and so honored and thrilled to be there that I, you know, people treated me well and I treated them well and, and, I I don't think it was that much of an issue. Also the bigger the orchestra I think the easier it is. You know, people in the explorer mine, they're very confident and they're very mm. you know, they've been doing it for a long time and and uh they were all tremendously supportive of me. All of these people that were there are, are almost all of them are gone. I'm like in the top ten seniority now. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I'm a young kid and now I'm now I'm 60 and I'm like, I'm one of the 10 oldest people in the orchestra. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I look at all these young people now and it's like, I was there once. I was there. I was that young once.
2: <laughs> I would like to know how you approach being a, uh, a principal player in the New York Philharmonic and um, how you approach work-life balance and maintaining the high level of performance and the expectations of being in that position at the same time?
3: Well, to be a principal player means that you have to be on your game in top shape all the time. And first of all, um, just playing lines. You have to, you know, I, I've always a lot. I always practice. I just practice a couple hours. I I like to sit in my room and I like to practice etudes, lots and lots of etudes. And I love to do chamber music and I love to, you know, I, you know, I do recitals. I just do, I just keep my playing up um, because the orchestra parts are are much easier to do, you know. And I think as a principal player, you have to be, you know, it, big stuff can come up at any time, and you have to you, know, you have to be totally prepared for it. You know, what reads are like, I know what reads are going to be used for the next couple of months, so. Yeah, you you just have to be constantly working on reads, keeping them going, and keeping your playing up to top in top shape. And I did love sitting around and practicing. I I do I I'm weird. I just love to <laughs> practice. I love to play. And so like even now, I feel like the the older I get, the more I have to practice to be at the same level. So I do that. And I I think the hardest thing that in my whole career that I've had to deal with is is read making. And um I've gone to Through a couple different read styles, and I'm so much happier now than I was 20, 30 years ago. I've had a wonderful read style that I'm happy with, and I wasn't as confident about it before. And that was always the hardest part for me was having enough reads. But as far as playing, you know, having a a section, my section now is completely different than what was when I started. I had three older gentlemen that were, I bet they were old at that point, but you know, I had to deal with, with personality, and they were all lovely. Um, then now I have three people there, we're all about the same age now. Well, one's a little younger, but um as far as running a section, you know, I have to d- decide who's, who's playing what, the repertoire. We do that, we do that every summer and we decide for the whole year. I like to have my section involved with what they want to play, what they don't want to play, and I just think it's just about mutual respect for Everybody's playing. I think we all get along great, and we're all good friends. And we we just support each other. And if someone needs time off, we try to give them more time off. If someone wants to play something more, they could do that. Like this past week, I decided I didn't want to play the second half, and my associate played that, and so I am it in for a couple more weeks for her. You know, things, people, we, you you just work things out because our, you know our schedule can be just relentless. It just doesn't stop. We 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 have to be on all the time. And, you know, you're doing one week, you're thinking, you're always thinking about the weeks ahead and what you're going to be playing and what reads you're going to need and how you're feeling. And besides, you have to have a life outside of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, so it's just a matter of give and take. And you, we really, I, as a section leader, I really try to work with them just so everybody's reasonably happy. And as far as playing with my other colleagues, uh, man, I just couldn't be happier, you know, sitting next to some of these great, great musicians. I'm just thrilled. You know, our, our new clarinet player, Anthony McGill, is just a dream. He's just, mm-hmm. i just diving onto heaven every time <laughs> I play with him. It's so <laughs> wonderful. And, uh, you know, we have wonderful, Clueless, Obelisk, everybody's great. And so, it's a, it's a pretty happy time.
1: I would love to hear about your experience in commissioning and premiering the concerto Five Sacred Trees.
3: Oh, that was, that was exciting. My husband is a, Jonathan Feldman. He's a, he's a pianist. He teaches collaborative piano at Juilliard and at New England Conservatory. And his brother, Ronnie, at that point was in, well, he was in Boston Symphony for 40 years and he was also did some guest conducting with the Boston Pops, and he knew John Williams, and he suggested to my husband, "Hey, why not he? we were all allowed to ask anybody we wanted when each of us was allowed to for this 150th anniversary of the Philharmonic, we were allowed to ask somebody to write a concerto, anybody we wanted." And I knew from Ronnie and Jonathan that John Williams was writing concertos for different instruments. They suggested, "Why don't you?" Asked him and I thought well it, it can't hurt um <laughs> I really didn't have anybody else in mind I didn't know anybody who would who would want to do that and so I um had his address from my or actually I wrote it to the Boston Symphony and I asked him whether he would be interested and I got a letter back like 10 days le- later saying he'd be thrilled to write a concerto and I'm like he you knows Jumping up and down, screaming! I can't believe <laughs> And um, he wrote it. And you know, we talked on the phone a few times. He had all these wonderful ideas about, you know, he wanted to make a concerto, the sacred trees. You know, he thought know, the bassoon being a part of a tree, and he wanted it to be, you know, something that, you know, about the bassoon. I can actually read what he wrote about it. Uh, as we become increasingly aware of the damage done by the destruction of our forests. It is illuminating to discover that our ancestors, many thousands of years ago, prayed to the spirits before felling a tree. One prayer was appropriate for a maple, another for the elm, the ash, and so on. The English poet Robert Graves writes of these prayers, which I have been unable to find, but which, nonetheless, have moved me to compose this music about trees featuring the bassoon, itself a tree. This is all the result of a request for a concerto, by the great bassinness, Judith Claire, whose unparalleled artistry is a mystery and a wonder in itself, which is very sweet that he said that. so. Wonderful. <laughs> Isn't that great? So that's what he he that's what he wrote and I just thought that was just so awesome. So he wrote this concerto and um sent me the the first draft and I think I I played it and I was practicing it and then I just came downstairs my husband and I just burst into tears. I said, like, I can't play this. <laughs> it's so hard. I don't, want, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be able to do this. It's so difficult. And we got to- together. I-, I worked several months on it. And then we flew out to Los Angeles and spent the weekend there. Uh, we went to- I went to his house. And, I mean, he wrote this in weeks. You know, John, I mean, he could write whole movies. He could write it at 25 minutes bassoon concerti it was within a couple two or three weeks i had this piece maybe it was a month so i worked on it we we went out in december to his house and i was able to you know walk into the room when he let me hold an oscar you know (laughs) wow (laughs) i I had an oscar in my hand it was awesome (laughs) and just to be in the same room with him and working with him and we went through the piece and there were things that just did not work on the bassoon He's a brilliant writer. He knows most instruments. He knows all the instruments, of course. But there were technical things that were just absolutely impossible. And I thought that one of the movements just went on too long, the last of it. So um, we worked on it, and we cut. We basically cut five minutes from this piece. Wow. And um, made some things easier to play. There were runs. There were trills. There were things that were just that were impossible. But we worked on it and they, we got the finished version, and then it was programmed for the following year, and that was tough. Those two years took ten years off of my life. <laughs> 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 Kurt Mazora was our music director, and we didn't have much rehearsal time on mm. it. And uh, but we knew it. I, I just remember it, it was it was pretty upsetting at that time because we had to go over overtime, and there were movements that people didn't know but you know my colleagues were fantastic and they were, all were terrific and it was very well received and um and then then we had fun after we did it with the Philharmonic. we went to Lo- london and recorded it at abbey road with sony and with the london symphony and we did it in a morning it was just it was just I had, that was like the most fun i've ever had in my life it was <laughs> ter- terrifying and it was just, it was so exciting to record that there, with, because John was conducting, and, and John was conducting, and he had control of the orchestra. It was just so exciting to do that, and I remember going out, we went out to dinner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg was there, and, and John's assistant, and I didn't really know who he was, <laughs> and I, we went out to dinner afterwards, and he shakes his hand high, and I just, I said, and you are? <laughs> he didn't know I was just like the most embarrassing moment in my life um, but I didn't know all these big Hollywood people and um, <laughs> anyway then I came back I had a, I had a week in London or several days in London so and then I was able to play it with um, John was conducting San Francisco Symphony and he he invited me to play it with them too and that was great because the the sim players there were friends of mine and they were very supportive and um and that's the last time I played it that was back I think that was around nineteen ninety eight, something like that. So um I don't want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and they've asked about, you know, commissioning another piece and um I haven't gotten that far yet. So <laughs> Yeah, so
1: that's my story with the five sacred trees. Awesome. So glad I
3: asked. <laughs> yeah. And and John is also, he endowed part of the um, music library at Juilliard, so he's very much involved with, um, he's he's involved with Juilliard. He's just such a wonderful man. I can't say enough wonderful things about him.
2: Well, we did a call for questions, and we got some really great questions from
3: our lovely listeners.
2: Okay. And this first one is from Ash. And Ash would like to know what advice you would give to someone in high school that wants a job like yours. And I would actually extend it to any pre-professional who wants a job like yours.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, you have to have nothing else in your life that you want to do. I think basically you have to pretty much at this point, there are so many people in colleges studying in conservatories all across the country and different countries too, but I mean, you have to want it, it with every cell in your body that you just want to play the bassoon. And it means giving up a lot of things. It means giving up hours a day to practice. And you have to practice all of your etudes and, you know, work with a really good teacher. You have to learn to make reeds. You've got to play chamber music whenever you can. You've got to learn, you know, the recital repertoire. But mostly, to me, Get in any chamber music group that you can with people you like to play with because if you want a job like this, your whole life is going to be spent playing with other people and you have to learn how to listen, have your radar out at all times, listen to what everybody else around you was doing. So play in as many groups as you can, practice, practice, make reads, and above all, listen to music all the time. And if you don't know a piece, Right now, you can go to IMSLP and on the uh, and you can print out any orchestra part in the world, except for only rentals. And you can you can print things out and you can get recordings because it's so easy now to listen and to learn music because you have all you have everything on the internet right there. You could just t- type in any piece and go to YouTube and and hear ten different orchestras play the same piece and have your part right there. And that's what I would suggest to do because. That's the only way you're going to learn all this music. And I, I just remember when I was in high school, I felt that I was the underdog in my chamber music group. I didn't know all the music that they did, so I just would, you know, I'd listen to all the Brahms symphonies, the Beethoven symphonies, all the other things and I just needed to catch up. So just listen to music as much as you can and play play with as many people as you can. Another thing I would I would do is I would get together. I had a clarinet friend. He was also went to Easton, and we would play Brahms symphonies together. And open symphonies, we would just... Anybody that I could get that would play, that was, you know, that wanted to play these things, because I just, I just wanted to play these things together, and then I learned how to play with a clarinet or the flute or an oboe. But anyway, that's what I would recommend.
1: Ritika would like to ask, could you please share your most memorable experience performing with the New York Philharmonic?
3: Well, there are a few. I think... um Point. With Bernstein, early on, we did the two bronze serenades, which people don't do very often. They're two of the most gorgeous pieces in the world, from first and second serenades, and we did them with him, and it was just heaven. I just loved it. I-, I haven't played either one of them in years. They were wonderful with Bernstein, and he was just so amazing. Another time, we did Brightest Spring with Bernstein, and he changed my whole outlook on the whole opening, hmm. completely, by what he said to me in the rehearsal, and it was just, you know, I think about it every time, you know, every time I play it now, and uh we did, oh, some beautiful, just, there's so many things we've done, um, the very Requiem with with Muti that was one that was incredible, oh gosh, I loved playing with Mazzel, Lauren Mazzel, because he's wonderful, he does art piano charity and Mozart symphonies, and you know, I'm a bassoon player. I like Mozart and <laughs> <John Brown. laughs> I don't like Stravinsky. I, you know, um, I've played Mahler. And you know, Mahler, I mean, is, is, is gorgeous and I love it, but it's not for a bassoon player. It's not what we play. Why we play the bassoon? So, uh, one time we did a Stravinsky-Mozart festival where we, we did so. We did Mozart and charity on the first half and Stravinsky pieces. It was for three weeks. It was. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It was really, really hard. Um, another time we did a different Stravinsky Festival where we played just about everything he wrote. Almost everything. Um, so those are a few of the, the great things that I can remember.
1: Before we move on, I can almost hear our bassoon listeners screaming oh, at us yeah. to ask So what did Bernstein say about the right of Supreme? <laughs> oh, very good. I thought you
3: got something. Well,. I played it, and here I was, I think I was like, this was for the first year, maybe I was 23, 24, we played it, and I played it, okay? And he just said, mmm, um he always did, 2D, he says, you, you must create an atmosphere, you have to create the mood from where everything else starts here. If you play it like an Italian opera, he says, we have nowhere to go from there you must create an atmosphere and mood. And and he wanted it very seductive and sensuous and mysterious and coming from nowhere. And um, above all, he wanted it in tune and he wanted the rhythm right and had to just get the sound quality of what he wanted. And um, that was quite a learning experience because it was so exciting. I don't think anyone in the world could do that piece like he did. And um, I guess it was okay because he came back and gave these lots of sloppy kisses afterwards. <laughs> everybody. He, he did their very best, but there were lots of hugs and kisses, but you knew when he was coming back. You, know, <laughs> you had to, like, prepare yourself <laughs> for a bath. <laughs> but anyway, that, that, that was his interpretation. And, it's, and of course, it's, it you know, he wanted it to be more haunting and, and uh, don't play it like an Italian opera. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> Rittika also had a question about any specific warm up routines that
3: you use. I I do a lot of etudes. I mean, like when I go to work, when I'm sitting in, in my seat, I just test reads on. I, you know, I I don't have a warm up technique at work. I mean, I used to play long tones uh, all the time, and you know, at work I just test reads. I test notes. I test soft attacks, tenor register levels, Everything. I just test. Attacked. But when I'm home, when I practice, I do etudes. I do, I love the mildees. I love the Jean-Court, the Orofichis. Uh, oh, there's some Guy Lacour etudes. I just like to do etudes. I think they, they, are, that's what I do. That's what I practice. I always like to do, have a few slow mildees a day and, um, then, uh, old oh, PRs. I do a lot of PRs. So, mm. I just like to have etudes going all the time because it keeps you it keeps you honest, it keeps you flexible, honest, it keeps your your fingers going, um, your technique in top shape, and the mildees, the slow mildees, keep it... If you can do slow mildees, you can do Scheherazade and Bolero, all these other things are easy compared to those. So <laughs> that's why, I, you know, they keep you honest. So, um, like, if I have something big to play, like if I know if I have to play a Tchaikovsky Symphony or Scheherazade, something big, I'll just load up on my mildees. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Julia wants to know what is your favorite piece of repertoire for bassoon and why
3: oh wow I love Pulcinella
1: mm. because it's
3: so challenging it's, it's written so, it's so hard it's so great um, love to play Pulcinella then we get into Mozart I love the Mozart Pianica Charity especially 22, 24 there's so many. I love the the late symphonies. 30, 38, 39, 40, 41. Uh, my favorite things to play. Those those are my favorite things. Oh, uh, I love to play Scheherazade. That's fun. I, I'll tell you the one thing I hate. And I just despise is Tchaikovsky 6. <laughs> <laughs> hate starting that piece. I hate ending it. <laughs> What's in between is nice, but you know. <laughs> so I'm finding our bassoon quartet at the orchestra. We, we, um, Dominic Schultz is a student of one of my colleagues, um, Kim Laskowski. He, he did an arrangement. He, he does all these phenomenal bassoon quartet arrangements. You should go to Trefko and look. Uh, he did a, an arrangement of like, the Pathetique, the scherzo from the Pathetique. And we did it at double recital a couple of years ago. It's phenomenal, and I think it's it's actually on YouTube of, of us playing it. It was, it was it was really fun. But anyway, so what? what that's what I hate. I, I hate playing Tchaikovsky VI. Um, there's nothing else I really hate, but those are things I love. <laughs> <laughs> I love playing the Verdi Requiem too. That's so much fun. Mm-hmm. And and again, I don't get to play that many operas, so. Um, The one thing I think I've I've missed is I've I've, I got to play a few Verdi operas and a few Puccini operas in my life and a few Wagner, but you know um, I don't know all that repertoire like I know symphonic. So Dylan
2: asks, what advice do you have for someone who is feeling musically inadequate
1: compared to their peers?
3: Well, that's a funny question. I um, if he feels inadequate, then he's got to find out what what is he actually feeling inadequate about? Because he doesn't know the music, does he not have the ability or the means to express it? Possibly his instrument isn't working right. Maybe, you know, it's a struggle to keep the tune in great working order. It's always a struggle. So if he feels inadequate, I think he's got to figure out what he feels inadequate about. You know, some people just have instruments that are in terrible shape and they can't play them. So that can be, you know, going to a great repairman and and getting well, getting a different instrument. You know, maybe he's not making good reads. Maybe he doesn't have a good or needs a better supplier or someone to help him with reads. I don't know. Maybe he just needs a good teacher.
1: <laughs> Do you have any like either embarrassing or just scary moments uh, in your performance career you can reflect on? Any funny things that have happened on stage?
3: Oh yes. Oh, <laughs> the worst. Well the worst this happened oh it's probably about seventeen or eighteen years ago. I had a I was a new mother and um I had a new cell phone. I you know, not a good combination. I didn't know anything <laughs> about <laughs> and I was back at work and um for some reason I had my purse on stage with the cell phone in it and i had just gotten that phone like the day before i didn't know how to turn the sound off <laughs> so you know it's coming you know it's coming <laughs> um and i my son was sick and so i was waiting i, I had been talking to the doctor before the concert had started because uh, i was i was at work and i i or my husband I, I can't remember i was talking to somebody about him being sick and i was really a little distracted and i went on stage and we were playing Nielsen 4 and I don't know if you know it, but it's, it's one of the loudest pieces in the whole universe. It's so loud. Except in one oh. moment where it's very <laughs> soft and there's nothing going on except the wind playing a really sweet little melody and all of a sudden my phone goes off. Oh. Oh. And it's in my bag and I let it go. Is it... Dig-a-dig-a-da? Dig-a-dig-a-da, dig-a-dig-a-da, <laughs> and it goes on and on, and we keep going, and we keep going, and like an idiot, I didn't, I should have dived down and turned it off, but I was too embarrassed. So, <laughs> we keep going, and this nice, soft little passage, and it starts ringing again.
1: Oh no! <laughs> and,
3: um, the conductor stops the orchestra, <gasps> turns around, and apologizes or says something to the audience. I don't know. Uh, he he knew it was coming to the orchestra. He didn't know who it was. And he apologized to the audience anyway. Everybody of course knew it was me because I was <laughs> it. and so I got home and well, first of all I had to go and apologize to him afterwards I said it was me and he was, he was very angry. And um I had to apologize. I went home and I felt like I had just Like the bottom had dropped out. I want, I, I I just, this is the worst moment of my life. And I went home and went to my husband. He says, Hi, honey, I was calling you to stop by and get some milk. (laughs) (laughs) I said, Yeah. Did you know that everybody in Avery Fisher Hall heard it? (laughs) He says, Oh, no. He says, Oh, no. Because, because I said, when I didn't answer, he called back. (laughs) And I said, You know, it was not his fault. So to this day, my lesson, Is I never ever bring a a cell phone on stage. They just don't do it. It's in in my locker room. I I do not bring a cell phone on stage. I won't. I cannot do it. Now, in the newspaper headline the next day, oh no! The New York Times: Cell phone ruins ruins (laughs) slow movement or whatever. It's it's cell phone was in the title, but it said it said that it came from the third balcony. Not oh. from the first bassoon chair.
0: <laughs>
3: so that was ter- that was terrifying. I think the other the other thing that was terrible. Um, when I performed with the the Williams Concerto with San Francisco, um, right after we were done, I went to you know take a bow. But before I walked off, I wanted to shake the harp player's hand because you know, she has a huge solo with me, and I didn't see the riser behind me and I tripped. And with my business in front of everybody and the concert master grabbed my arm and was able to keep me up and I, I was just like, you know um, I didn't fall I didn't go down. But um, <laughs> um but I thought of, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night for weeks afterwards thinking
2: they're setting right
3: now. You know, if you trip and you trip and you fall down, oh my god, this just it's just horrifying. So, so those are two th- those are two things. One other thing we it was a snowstorm and we were stuck. Uh, my husband and I were driving in, and it was track six on the second half. I didn't play the first half. Um, we got stuck the car, and then someone had to push us to a gas station. Whatever it was, it was your worst nightmare. And we go on stage, and they had to wait. They had to hold the concert for me. I go on stage, and I have to start that. And, and um, I just didn't get the first note out at all. And when he' got to dinner, so it was letters flock, and he was very sweet, and he just stopped to take a breath, and then we started again, and it was fine. but um, so yeah,
2: those are three terrible things. <laughs> those are the most relatable right. like <laughs> stories, oh. right, they're just terrible <laughs> <laughs> This has been such an incredible chat. I'm so excited to talk to you, and I would like to know what your upcoming projects are? Any big performances coming up?
3: Sure. Um, let's see. The week of Thanksgiving, Saturday after Thanksgiving, we're doing the Nielsen Quintet. Some of my colleagues and I are doing the Nielsen Quintet on a Saturday matinee we with the chamber version of the first half. And then two weeks later, we're doing um, the Mozart Symphonie Concertante. Um, Alan will be conducting. And so that's the... I think starts December 6th that week we're doing four performances of the of the concert, concert so I'm really looking forward to that and um and then we're doing a tour in um March Asia tour with Yop our new yop and our new amazing conductor and he's doing Bride right of Spring on that tour so I'm going to have to get over jet lag pretty quickly on that tour, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. So that'll be pretty exciting. And that's that's you know the there's just the whole season is chock full of things. But um, the Mozart is the is the is the thing that's coming up rather quickly. I guess we're doing an reveal. we're doing the concertos and the bolero and, and in, fifth, in January and you know things like that. I'll, also. In January, end of January, um, some of the um, music academy students fellows are are coming in to play with the orchestra, and I'm going to be playing the Nielsen Quartet with four of them um, at a, a chamber recital here in, in the city, and that would be really fun. I get to coach and play with them, so and they're they're really terrific kids, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, anyway, uh, chamber music-wise, that's that's about it for right now.
1: Well, I cannot think of a better way to celebrate our one-year anniversary of the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. What a fun chat. Thank
3: you very much.
2: Thank you so much for listening to our one-year anniversary episode of Double Read Dish. We hope you loved that interview with Judy LeClaire as much as we did. Um, You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and is that it? I think that's it.
1: And don't forget to tune in on December fifteenth, where we will be joined by Alan Bogle. Uh, as our special guest, this interview is awesome. He talks about meditation, gratitude, and um perspective in music. So can't wait to share that still with you. Together,
3: still going strong, still.